Arabo and our region. Regular events spotlight some of the best artists and musicians in our area and throughout Minnesota and the upper Midwest. Our beautifully restored facility includes art galleries, classrooms, clay and textile labs, a gift shop and rehearsal spaces, in addition to a 300-seat auditorium. Visit ParadiseCenterForTheArts.org for a full schedule of events or call our box office at 507-332-7372. Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination, with your host, Paula Granquist, is brought to you by the Northfield Arts Guild and by the Paradise Center for the Arts. And now, Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. Good morning. This is Paula Granquist, and you're tuned in to Art Zany, Radio for the Imagination. Thank you so much for being here today and for helping us celebrate all things creating and stories. So let's get tuning our imaginations together. When I was a kid, Saturday afternoons were often about watching sports on television. We would watch most anything, auto racing, bowling, college football, track, downhill skiing, do you remember the ABC Wide World of Sports opening? I'm not going to do it the way that those great uh, announcers did, but the words were spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of sport, the thrill of victory, and the agony of defeat. What's the image that comes to your mind? It's that skier that was featured in that, and it became known as the agony of defeat. And that was uh, downhill skier, or excuse me, a s jumper, Vinko Bot. Tahi. No, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't say that. Bogotai. There we go. And uh, part of the story that I didn't know of that was that he was competing as a Yugoslavian entrant at the Ski Flying World Championships in Oberstdorf, West Germany, on March 21st, 1970. A light snow had begun falling at the start of the event, and by the time um, Bogotai, I should have practiced saying that, was ready for his third jump. The snow had become quite heavy. And midway down the ramp for that jump, he realized that the conditions had made the ramp too fast. He attempted to lower his center of gravity and stop his jump, but instead he lost his balance completely and rocketed out of control off the end of the ramp, tumbling and flipping wildly and crashing through a light retaining fence near a crowd of stunned spectators before coming to a halt. He was okay. He had just a mild concussion. But that's what we all saw many times. And there's a great video on YouTube from ABC Wide World of Sports just called The Agony of Defeat, where a sportscaster Brett Musburger goes through the inside story of this memorable ski jump and the skier. It's really wonderful and fascinating. What I started thinking about this week was how did that particular event uh, and the way that it was promoted and broadcast affect down our participation in ski jumping. It was repeated week after week to an audience that had only a few channels of television. I imagine much of America and maybe the world watched that sports show. My dad always called attention to the video when it came on because, of course, it was the time when we didn't have rewind or recording options. You had to be paying attention to see what was on the screen. We cringed at the flailing skier and also admired how he survived that spectacular crash. And so when I consider ski jumping, it's not the fall for me that I'm fascinated by. It's the flying. I've always loved watching the skier glide across the air with stillness and strength and grace. It seems we hold our breath together and time stops. As I watch, I wonder what that must feel like. To share the moment with a skier as he flies through the air is to believe that we can all fly. 
And there's so much that goes into that moment of flying. We know so little about the life of the skier, but we see that moment and share that moment. There's lots of things that go into that. Other triumphs, hours of practice, adjustments to technique that make it possible to fly a little farther. How his family feels about ski jumping, his hopes, his love, his hate for the sport, the snow, the cold. There's so much of another story inside of every story. And a good story allows us to enter a world that is unknowable to us. We discover what it takes to be in that world, what we share in common, what decisions are required to succeed in that place, what are the risks and what happens when things go wrong. And I am thrilled today to be able to share with you a story that is about ski jumping and family and how we manage the ways our past lives encircle the present. Today in Arts Aining Radio, I'm going to be talking with author Peter Guy to discuss his new novel, The Ski Jumpers. Ski Jumpers is a a book about a writer and former ski jumper facing a terminal diagnosis as he takes one more leap into a past of soaring flights and broken family bonds. You can get more at Peter Guy, which is G-E-Y-E dot com if you want more information. He is the author of the award-winning novels Safe from the Sea, The Lighthouse Road, Wintering, winner of the Minnesota Book Award, Northernmost, and his newest novel, The Ski Jumpers, which was just published in September of 2022. He will be coming to Northfield on Monday, October 10th at 7 p.m. at Content Bookstore. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want to turn on the mics and welcome Peter to Art Zany Radio. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Paula. It's so good to How hear. How are you doing? I'm doing fabulous. I am so excited for this opportunity to be able to speak with you. And I wanted to ask you about that ABC Wide World of Sports Agony of Defeat video. As as someone who was ski jumping at that time, how did did you watch it? Did you think about it? Oh, it was a huge part of our identity as as ski jumpers. And it's so interesting. I've never thought about the impact that that must have had on kids who might have wanted to try, but whose parents might not have wanted to let them. That's exactly uh, right. So, the parents were like, no, no, yeah. no. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, one truth to add to the to the uh, little biography that you gave of him there, I'm not sure if it's his granddaughter or his great-granddaughter. I think it's his granddaughter, <clears throat> a young woman named Ursa Bogatai, who's now one of the best uh, women ski jumpers in the world. Oh, wow. So the story lives on. The sport lives on in his, in his family. Oh, that's yeah. a, I didn't know that fact. And, and, uh, that the, what I read from was from that ABC wide world of sports YouTube video, which is just fascinating because they go behind the scenes and tell a little bit more about that day and what happened to him afterwards. So there, there are a lot of great yeah. ski jumping stories and, and this one should be added to that. Uh, I never knew that you were a ski jumper at all. So that was. I'm I, surprised. It's usually the first thing I tell people about myself. <laughs> well, <laughs> it, it is it's something you did uh, when you were younger, right? And uh, yeah, uh, I I'm, just want to ask, what was it that kept you going back to the hill again and again? So I want to kind of divide our time into. We're going to talk a little bit about, about Peter as a skier, but then we'll jump into the character in the book. Yeah. I mean, I I started when I was a kid. I started when I was seven years old uh, at Theater Worth Park in Minneapolis. And, I mean, straight away, from from my very first days, I was in love with the, with the sport, with the 
with the speed of it, with the the, the, the flight of it, the height of it. Uh, I mean, the big jumps came much later, obviously, but right away, from from the very first days, I knew that I wanted to I wanted to do this. That it was so much fun, and it was pretty simply just that, just fun. As I got older, of course, it became more than fun. It became a couple of things, a huge part of my identity for one, uh, but also something that I really wanted to be good at and really worked hard at being good at, uh, competitive at. I skied all over the country um, in national competitions, uh, and, and I had my moments for sure, um, but by the time I was uh, almost 20 years old, I guess the, the sport had run its course and, and I quit, but until then, it was sort of the only thing I did. It was my whole identity. It was my whole life. When I wasn't actually jumping or traveling for it, I was training for it or working to, to have money to, to, to do the traveling, to do the competing. And, and it, was, it was pretty much who I was until, until, I, was, uh, until I was done with it. I, well, I'm so excited to know this part of you and to, for you to build that into a novel so that we can learn about that world. And uh, one of the things I, I found fascinating was in this book, uh, there, the character John is also a downhill ski jumper, and you describe his father, Jake, as a poet coach. I love that phrase because it, you were com- contrasting him to the other coaches that were at this particular competition that were more um, calculating and, you know, mathematical and clipboards and, and, and you know, precision. Uh, so I wonder what kind of a coach, because your dad also coached you. What, what kind of a coach was he? He, he was, well, my dad didn't actually spend much time coaching me. I mean, when I was a kid, he did, because all the dads did. They were always out helping, and there were never enough, uh, never enough bodies to help with all the kids. And, and so he, of course, um, helped in that way. My dad was less cerebral about, the, he was a former ski jumper himself, I might add. When he was in high school, he, was a, he, he competed for his high school team, which back in the day, there used to be ski jumping as a high school sport in Minnesota. Uh, so, so he had that in his, his past. He, he didn't have uh, the love for it or the dedication to it that the father character in the book does. In the book, Jake, or Pops, as he's more commonly referred to, is a, a full-on uh, disciple of the mm-hmm. sport. And that's, that's more reflective of the way that my brother... Uh, and I became later in our lives. And I think, I'm not sure, you know, why it's true. I think my dad wouldn't, um, wouldn't, wouldn't be um, embarrassed to hear me say that both my brother and I were better, more competitive ski jumpers than him. That's, that's just a fact. But we also had a, a kind of, a, I don't even know, you know, just a, a love for the sport. And part of it was rooted in our identity with our involvement in it, but it was also just the sport itself. I mean, it's such a beautiful sport. And by the time you're going off those bigger jumps, the feeling is, um, I mean, you can't, there's nothing to match it. I mean, certainly nothing that I ever experienced to match it. And it became like this, I don't know where I was most at peace and where I was happiest and where I felt most in control of my life and like my life most mattered. 
Yeah, and I would imagine that one of the most common questions you get is, what does it feel like to fly? And I think you try to answer that for us in this book. And in the story that in the new novel, The Ski Jumpers by Peter Guy, Jake is talks about that and he describes it as like being invisible or like being made of glass but most importantly it's a peaceful place and that's that's I thought that was a really good description was it hard for you to actually find the words once you were you know tasked with trying to tell us who are not down you know jumpers to what that's like I mean it was a big part of the project of writing the book for sure i really wanted to honor the sport to draw attention to it and to describe it and part of the project of describing it was mining my own memories of it and mining those feelings which still i mean it's been a long time since i was on a ski jump more than 30 years but i can still recall i mean with kind of striking um, clarity and striking recall what it was like to be, you know, to, to be shooting yourself off the end of the jump and to be in that peaceful flight position. And I tried really hard to to capture it. Uh, I, I think there's probably about six or seven scenes in the novel that deal directly with the experience of the sport, like a a sort of vicar- the the object being a vicarious experience for the reader, where they might, through the process of reading the pages, have some sense of what it was like to be to be in flight or to be a ski jumper. But when I finished the first draft of the book, there were probably twenty of those mm-hmm. scenes in the book. So it really, and I knew that there were too many, of course, and it and it became the process of refining those and making them sharper and making them more poignant and more meaningful became a big part of the revision process. But yes, absolutely. Always with an eye on recreating that experience for the reader, if not reliving a little bit myself. Sure. Well, it comes across and it really does illuminate. And I think, like I mentioned, a great story can take us to a place that we could never go ourselves. You know, there's not, uh, not many of us that are going to be starting ski jumping at you know an age <laughs> a certain age uh, but I, and I do want to tell readers that even though you were a ski jumper like the character in the book and your father and your brother are ski jumpers and your uh, your main character John is a writer this is not a book about your experiences this is a novel <laughs> and I wondered if, if you were ever interested in doing it more as a memoir or was it always going in your mind going to be something that you wanted to explore in a fictional world you know, one of the things that's true about the, the 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 process of writing this book is that I mean, it took a really long time. I worked on it for more than a decade. Not you know, not every day for more than a decade, but off and on for more than a decade. And a a, a big part of the process of figuring out what the book was going to be about was figuring out how to extract myself from this from the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, likening myself to John or likening John to me. And, I mean, the the reason it's a novel and not a memoir, I mean, there are many reasons, but the, the, most, uh, the most important of those reasons is that though I loved my time as a ski jumper, of course, I've already talked about that, and consider it with a kind of reverence and awe that I still, you know, I still, I still relish in, my story in the sport 
was not nearly, and, and certainly my story in life, my own personal story, is not nearly as compelling as the story that John lives and that his brother lives. And I'm just not interested in in <laughs> telling a <laughs> telling a boring story. Frankly, I mean the, the 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 job of a fiction writer is to is to make this story come alive and to make it interesting and fun and exciting and scary and dangerous and and all the other things that that fiction can be. And I, I don't have that in my own personal story, so it would just wouldn't have been as much fun to write. Well, I am glad that you wrote The Ski Jumpers as a novel. And the great thing about it is then, you, as as a writer, you get to insert all kinds of twists and turns. And mm-hmm. this circles around a lot of lies and secrets in this family. And I think we can reveal the diagnosis, because we learn about that pretty early in the book. Or did you want to save yep. that? It's okay? Oh, no. Okay. Yeah, of course. The main character, John, is is confronted by the diagnosis of early-onset Alzheimer's. And at that point, I think he really realizes that, that before his time runs out, right, with those memories and his, his relationship with his wife and his family and his loved ones, he wants to share his true story. And I, I love this line, which uh, comes a little later in the book. As soon as I look back, and this was actually John, the writer, thinking about, you know, wanting to write. But I think it, it says something about uh, John as the, the patient trying to figure this out. As I look back, I feel I an urge to look ahead and neither inclination is right. So he's in that point of not sure where he wants to spend his time, if he has very lim- limited time to be able to uh, function as he knows. And time really becomes a pressure for him, and that launches the story. So how did you decide you know, who he was going to talk to, how he was going to tell people, when to reveal these stories that... You know, I, they just so effortlessly flow through, you know, you're across time in within the novel itself. It's really brilliantly laid out. Oh, thanks for that. I mean, I can tell you how much that means to me because it wasn't effortless at all in the execution. I mean, it took a lot of, oh, I mean, a lot of thinking first, a lot of trying second, a lot of retrying and revising third and fourth um, to, to get that quality of the storytelling to you know, not only to be artful, but to ring true and to have mm-hmm. some, uh, some, some, I don't know, some similarity to, to how we actually live our daily lives, you know, ca- caught between the things that we're looking forward to and the things that we remember, you know, to say nothing of the moment that we're living in now. The, the John, John's diagnosis, and in fact, his whole story with Ingrid, his wife, which is the most contemporary part of the story, it happens in a single day in 2019, a single February day in 2019, where he and Ingrid are driving up to visit their daughter who lives, uh, they're from Duluth and, and their daughter lives on the North Shore. And that part of the story came, it was the last piece. I mean, oh. I was working with the other parts of the story for years. I mean, for, for, for many years, in fact before I realized that I, there was a component that was missing. And it was always a reflective story. That is a story that, you know, cast its gaze backward. But I didn't have John himself there casting it. It was just an omniscient voice speaking it. And it, and it felt, I don't know, disconnected from John in that way. So I, so I 
you know, so I invented a contemporary storyline for him. But it's also true that of the things that happen in that most contemporary storyline, his diagnosis is was, again, one of the last things that I realized might be there. Mm. And the reason for that is pretty simple. I needed I needed there to be a reason. I mean, plainly and simply, there needed to be a reason for John to share these secrets on this day. It's, it's, a, it's amazing how often uh, storytelling fiction requires just, just a reason. There just mm. needs to be a reason that this is happening today. And so what, what could be that reason? And as soon as I thought it, I realized all the way that it complicated the rest of the story and really liked it for that as well. But it's also worth pointing out that though he's been given this diagnosis, and of course it's an enormous part of his day, and certainly will be an enormous part of his life going forward. It's more like a shadow cast across the story. They they confront it a little bit. He and mm-hmm. his wife do. He and Ingrid do. But it's not. I mean, we don't dwell in the um, eventualities or in the in the diagnosis or the prognosis. None of those things take up uh, a ton of space on the page. Uh, it's more like, you know. Something as yet to come, a a, a kind of storm cloud on the horizon of his life. Exactly. And there's one line from Hamlet that's quoted that I think sums up some of this pretty well, which is, uh, conscience does make cowards of us all. And it's really Mm -hmm. interesting to me as you present that line and think about this, that, that, you know, as someone who doesn't ski jump, I imagine the courage that's required to go down that in run and take that flight and to think about the landing. And it's interesting that, that the character here um, really, you know, exhibits that he has the courage, but yet in his own life, he runs away from the hard stuff and has mm-hmm. great fear about telling his true story. And so the fascinating piece of the book is that there's um, this whole family, I think, of people that are in that place because the dad and the sons all ski jump and they're all dealing with these truths and lies and secrets. And it's really, it, they're complex characters. It's a great setting. Did you think about how fear and courage mingle in this book? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, I did, and in in, in interest to me at least, in interesting ways. Like, yes, John has been, I guess, cowardly is a is a word that might describe describe him withholding these things from Ingrid and and even from himself to a to a certain extent. Absolutely, that's different than that's different than the kind of fear that might have attended him while he was ski jumping. And yet it's like, it's like he and his brother. I mean, the, 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 those fears are that closely related. Um, and it's, I, I don't know, to me, at least it's interesting that so much of our lives uh, and by our lives, I mean, people, so, mm-hmm. so regular people, not even fictitious people are, are, uh, you know, what are we? We're beholden to those fears and we we grapple with them, and we struggle against them, and sometimes we defeat them, and sometimes they defeat us, and that feels very much just like life to me, like everyday life. Not always as dramatic as it sometimes is in the novel, but 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 that's how we get through it, and that's how I wanted John to to come across and for for his story to resonate. 
Yeah, it absolutely does. And uh, we're going to resist from sharing. And we want the readers to discover some of those secrets mm. and stories. So I want to maybe think about the one aspect of the book that I thought was also fascinating. And this is sort of meta in that he is a writer who's writing a story called The Ski Jumpers <laughs> within the book. <laughs> so that that mm-hmm. was uh, a fascinating piece of it, too. And um, he, I love how he even says in the book, who would want to read this? And here we are reading the book <laughs> <laughs> about <laughs> ski jumpers. And it's not true. It's it, Everyone should read this. It's Again, if you're just tuning in, this is Art Zany Radio. I'm Paula Granquist. We're talking with Peter Guy about The Ski Jumpers. And it's, it's intriguing to me that so much of, of the story is also sort of the uh, life of a writer, if you will. Um, there's lots of struggles about him wanting to write. There's some great meditations on writing. And uh, some of these things, you know, as I started reading, I was thinking, oh, there's a lot of parallels here between, you know, that, that uh, wh- whether writing is your art or there's other kinds of art, you know, fears and doubts and, you know, those times when it takes off and you're just flying and your imagination is lit up and there's, you know, setbacks, you have to worry about trust. I mean, there's a lot of parallels. So what, when did you decide that that was an element that was going to be fully explored as well in the book? It's such a it's such a curious thing to talk about it yeah. after having lived it and 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 well of course written it uh, over the over the years. I put the I put that part of John's character in the book almost, uh, I mean almost accidentally. Like it was a, a notion that I had. I'm trying to develop who he is and who he is in this moment and what he's working on and working against and what he's preoccupied with and all the things that go into inventing and creating and developing a character. And all of a sudden he's a, he's a novelist. Uh, I'm sure it's because I felt so uh, familiar with him and so similar to him that I was willing to, to do that. Um, but I thought it was just going to be a lark. I thought it was something that eventually would be scrubbed from the, the novel. I'm glad I didn't scrub it from the novel because I think it does uh, I mean, captures some of those parallels, yes, but also gives his character, at least for me, a deeper resonance that, that this part of his life is another thing that he's going to lose. He's going to lose his memories, of course. Mm-hmm. He's going to lose the love of his life, and she's going to lose hers. He's going to miss out on his future and the way that people who suffer from this terrible disease do, and yet he has a, uh, whatever it is, something like a legacy or something like a, 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 pa- a permanent past, a past with some permanence, these books that he's written. And I, I, I guess I just started thinking about the, the way that I consider my own work and, and the way that I consider the books that I most love, not books that I've written, obviously, but other books that I've read. And, and the place that they have in our lives. And it did start to amplify the rest of the story. And parallels did start to emerge. And I've thought about this many times in the writing of this book, how similar the prospect of standing at a ski jump was as a kid, as a kid looking down at getting ready to go, and how each morning now when I get up to work and I'm facing a blank page, I mean, those two things are quite similar in a lot of ways. They require a lot of the same courage, a lot of the same temperament and personality attend both of those parts of my life. 
And I really love the way that they came to make more meaning for each other. Yeah, I think it, it is a, a wonderful aspect of the story that uh, comes up in sometimes funny, sometimes thoughtful, you know, there's, or just, you know, a, everyday parallels. So it's something people should uh, look forward to exploring, something unexpected, I would say. And, you yeah. know, one of the things that was really exciting was I had the opportunity to join you and a few hundred of your fans <laughs> at the book launch for the Ski Jumpers. And I had come with a, a poet writer friend who was just amazed at the turnout. And it's because you've, cre you know, cultivated this great fan base and the great books that you've written have also uh, been something that has, has drawn people to your stories. And uh, one of the things you're doing it for this is a big book tour two dozen Midwestern bookstores, which is very exciting, including contents. So I want to give everybody information about that. That's happening on Monday, October 10th, 2022, from 7 to 8 at Content Bookstore on Division Street in downtown Northfield, contentbookstore.com. And in this particular event, uh, you're going to be in conversation with Katie Schwen, um, uh, author of The Rending and the Nest, Tailings, a Memoir, and Tonka and Me, a great Northfield writer herself. And uh, so that's really fascinating. Uh, some of those events do have that discussion element to it. Uh, tell me how it feels to be out again doing that touring, and you've already done a, a couple, at least a dozen of them. Yeah, I mean, more than that, I think, probably something more like 20 of them already. And it's really, it's really wonderful. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, not least just to get to interact with and have conversations with readers. I mean, it's something that COVID really took away from mm -hmm. us. And by us, I mean, you know, fans of fans of books and fans of literature and fans of the conversation that happen around that. And I mean, you know, as a, as a writer, you sit here, I'm sitting at my desk right now. My work is all spread out in front of me and it's, you know, it's where I go and it's where, the real work happens and it's almost like those chances to be out with readers and with friends is a celebration of the work that goes on alone. Usually, you know, I'm sitting here in my pajamas and it's very <laughs> quiet and personal and private and, the, and, and, and to take the book out into the world that, I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. You know, these books aren't complete until people start reading them and start hopefully enjoying them, of course, but also uh, knowing themselves better as a consequence of, of reading them. And to get to do events with friends, writer friends, um, has been a real, oh, I, I can't even describe it. I mean, people like Kate are, are you know, they're, they're just terrific folks. They're so smart. They're so interesting. We have so much fun together. And it's just a chance to get to to, to schmooze and be among among friends and like-minded people and I uh, never have taken that for granted certainly I take it even you know I mean it's it's more fun now than ever given how the last few years have been yeah I agree I felt like that was probably my first time going back to a large book event where I felt all right you know it was so great to see people and fit you know be in person and get excited about a book. So I thank you for uh, hosting that. And Lorna Landvik was your, your co-host. And it was a, a, an yeah. incredible night. And one of the things I found interesting was that the, you're touring the book a lot in the Midwest. And uh, I'm, I'm wondering if that's a strategy to build it first in the Midwest and then to 
uh, try to, you know, bring attention to it in in broader areas. I, I mean, I don't think it has to be a Midwest story, but it's set in the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's set elsewhere, too. I mean, there are scenes that take True. place, uh, I guess, one other one other location in upstate New York. Uh, the answer to that question is I don't really know that it matters to me <laughs> mm. I, or, 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 or what, what's even possible. I mean, here's what I think is um, true. The, the, the booksellers that I know best, the booksellers that I, sellers that I've spent time cultivating relationships with who are, who are truly and, and largely friends of mine more than even colleagues, are the booksellers in the Midwest? They've been the most supportive, and of course, that's natural. This, this takes nothing away from booksellers around the rest of the country who've also been supportive. But I just, as a Minnesota person, as a as a, a writer about this part of the world, I think that it's natural that that this will be where the 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 bread gets buttered, as it were. And these are the folks who have you know who have invited me, who have asked me to come. I don't know if it will mean eventually that readers in the rest of the country will take a shine to the book. I hope they will. I think it's a book. I mean, I'm very proud of it. I think just because you're from California or Washington or Louisiana, that doesn't mean you wouldn't necessarily be interested in the book, but, uh, but, but it is what it is. I I'm, I'm supporting this book along with the folks who've been more most supportive of me over the years and it's a it's just a pleasure well and i think it's great that that you know these these things that we do in the midwest are illuminated and uh highlighted and celebrated and absolutely it's it's ultimately a story about family and you know this this uh family these characters that are trying to figure out this break that happened in their family story and the ways that everybody has, you know, told stories or made up stories or, you know, didn't reveal the truths or kept things from each other. And, you know, how they, you know, come up, go apart and come together again. And it's it's great, too, because it takes place across decades as well. So it's, there's a section in the 50s, which I really loved and thought the language and, you know, the... Uh, music and all the things that you highlighted, all the details were, were really gave it a good um, sense of the time and the place, which is Chicago. And uh, so, so there's a lot that, that you cross here. And I wonder who was the easiest um, of those characters to invent and who made your life as a writer a bit difficult? <laughs> uh, it's such a hard question to answer. I'm glad you brought up the family part of the story, though, because it really, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about ski jumping, and ski jumping is. Um, obviously, it's a big part of the book. It's the main subject in the book besides family. But family and that family story is what's most interesting to me as a human being and as mm-hmm. a novelist and what I think will appeal to most readers. I mean, speaking of family, I think that uh, John and Anton's mother, Beth, uh, was was a, a, a difficult character for me to write. And listen, I, I made my own problems there my own bed <laughs> lion she's just a difficult a difficult woman and a complicated woman a troubled woman a woman with um you know a, a lot of oh what would the word even be a, a, a woman with a lot of depth in her life most of which has gone unplumbed and uh, as I think was often the case, and, and, and listen, it, it remains the case that people don't always investigate their lives to the extent that we should. 
But I, I tried to give her a, a, a secret past in a way, or, or almost like a, a secret personality in honor of who she is. That is someone who's not especially available to her kids or to her husband. Mm-hmm. So she was she was tough to write. Um, and I guess, I mean, I guess kind of frankly, she's the only one who was who was difficult to write. There's a couple of pretty bad men in this book, uh, criminals and uh, thieves and, uh, and and worse, gangsters, sort of. Um, and though, of course, I wouldn't want to be friends with these guys, it was a ton of fun to, to write them and to imagine the world in which they lived and operated and, and, and how that, whatever, helped them uh, see the rest of the world, the world that m- you know, most of us inhabit. That was a pretty, pretty fun trip for me. Yeah, and there's a, a lot of those settings that are uh, really delve into some of those stories and, you know, add some of that tension to the, you know, how everybody's connected. And it it really is an intriguing part of the story. And one of the things I I also loved is that you mentioned hinge moments in the book. And it's uh, John says, as he's he's hoping and wishing, I think this is when he's thinking about writing, maybe, um, but it applies to everything. I've always been most intrigued by the moments on which life's hinge this is true in fact and in fiction. And so mm-hmm. I think it's it's a really nice, um, you know, way of looking. And, and there's so many of them in, in a lot of our different lives. And what's also interesting is those hinge moments by some members of the family are viewed one way. And another family member says, no, that's not the story. And that uh-huh. <laughs> makes for a lot of great storytelling. And in the, even just... Um, the difference too between uh, John and his wife Ingrid, uh, how you know he wants to, you know, go backwards and forwards, and she's like, "Let's just be in this moment." Uh, there's a really funny scene when they're at a, a lighthouse. <laughs> I don't know if I want to give. It's just one, a little one line about how they both see the world differently and what happens in front of them. Uh, and so I, I thought that was um, really illuminating and. Uh, you know, resonates throughout so much of of the book, both how family members see these differently, and how each each time we go through something like that, we can be keenly aware of the threshold that we're about to cross. Absolutely, and I mean, this is true, of course, in the novel because the novel requires it, right? In order to to be a novel, and in order to sustain a little narrative momentum, and and have a story, and have some tension there needs to be those moments. But those moments happen in our lives, whether we want them to or not, whether we recognize them or not. And they can be simple things like, you know, when we decide if we're going to go, my, my oldest son is looking at colleges now. And so he's mm-hmm. about to decide which college he wants to go to. That's a hinge moment for him. You know, a, a, much of the rest of his life is going to depend on the choice that he makes. And that's a choice that you know, many people make or choices similar to that, which job you're going to accept, which, you know, which, which, um, which person you're going to marry, which house you're going to buy, all of those things um, create, you know, the, the, the facts of our lives, the story and stories of our lives. And, you know, we don't always have to stop and reflect on them. We don't always have to ponder 
what the alternative choice might have led to. But for a character like John and for someone like me, uh, those moments get more treatment and more thought put into, I think, than probably most people. And that's just a part of who he is. It's certainly a part of who I am. And for better or worse, I'm stuck with that fact of myself. And I think that it's that, you know, largely because of who I am, that I'm drawn to do the work that I do, which is to write these books. It's a, the, the books and the work that attends them is a really good chance for me to investigate what the question, what if? What if something else had happened? What if I had made another choice? What if my characters made other choices? Then, the, you know, the, the, the effect of those alternative possibilities, alternative realities, really end up teaching me a lot about I mean, about myself. So it sort of comes full circle in that way. Well, I'm glad you brought up that word circle because one of the things, you have great vocabulary. I just, I love reading a Peter Guy book because there's going to be words I'm going to learn. Not in a way that I want to scare anybody. Uh, just, you know, an occasional <laughs> word that you're like, that is so perfect. And I want to look that up. I want to know more about that word. And in the opening pages, there were two words that I, I looked up. One was G-Y-R-E, um, Gyre, I always say that wrong. Mm -hmm. Do I say that correctly? Gyre? I, I think so, yeah. Okay, which is a whirl or a gyrate or a spiral or a vortex. And then this great word, Euroboros, which I was fascinated by. Uh, I had to, to, to look that one up. And that's also a circular symbol depicting a snake swallowing its tail as an emblem of wholeness or infinity. And it, I think it can also be a dragon. And uh, I, that really got me thinking about the structure of the story. And, if, if, and I was, you know, thinking about, you know, circling around our past and building up a, our world and, you know, living in our own circles. And I wondered if that was something, the imagery that you picked, and I imagine it might be if I know you, Peter, <laughs> um, was <laughs> intentional for you to, you know, think about those, those elements it's so interesting the, the way attentive readers pick up on things. And here's, and, and there's a, a, like, for one, for once, I guess, I'm happy to have a really clear answer in my mind to, to the question. And that is, when I start writing a book like this, and I mentioned that it took a long time. I worked on this book for more than a decade. Uh, and, and so it changed so much. But as soon as I figured out what, for me, was the big mystery in this novel, the, the how to tell it mystery in the novel, I realized that I wanted it to be a story that just keeps sort of circling back, like mm -hmm. the cause and effect of, of the choices that were made in life, they keep coming back to haunt these folks. And they keep, you know, you, you can't be at the moment where you are without all of those moments along the way. And I tried to 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 capture that feeling in the in the sort of um, non-linear storytelling, the way the story goes back and forth in time and kind of circles around in time, and how uh, a moment that's resonating from one epic in the story informs a moment in another epic of the story, and still another epic in the story, and it just keeps going around like that. That was a very difficult thing to realize about the story. That is the the sort of the, the timeline of the book, if you will, and how it was going to keep 
you know, I mean, to say it a third time, circling back mm-hmm. on itself. Once I realize that, then I am, yes, very interested in those smaller details that can be incorporated in a way that's hopefully organic and hopefully natural, um, but also reinforces the notion of that through, 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 through suggestion and through metaphor and through the imagery that I use in the book. And, um, you know, attentive readers will pick up on that, but nothing's lost if you don't pick up on that, right? I mean, it, it no. remains the same story. It just gives it a little more, for me anyway, a little more depth and a little more playfulness when those when those things are true. Right. It, was, it resonates in a different way when you start thinking about it at that level, because there's, there's a lot you can take in in this book. It's, it's really um, just, you know, on so many, whatever level you're at that moment wanting to read, right? If you're just wanting a great story and a fun, you know, mystery and intrigue, and you can read it that way. You can read it about ski jumping. You read about, you know, creating. It's just there's so much in there. So I think, you know, memory is another another element. So there's so much that goes into it. It's it's very well done. And I, I very much enjoyed it. And I was, you know, one of the things that I learned, I guess we'll jump back a little bit to, to um, ski jumping, is that you can do ski jumping in the summer, which I didn't even know. I thought it was just a winter sport. And so there's, there's a scene where that you go to Madison. And uh, I, I thought, well, maybe, you know, are, where do people go now to ski jump if someone reads this book and goes, oh, my gosh, I love it. I want to try that. Well, it, it is true that there's ski jumping in summer, and it is a little-known fact about the sport, not among its practitioners, of course, but among the general population, especially here in, in, the, in the States. In fact, last night was the last night of summer, quote-unquote, summer ski jumping at the Minneapolis Ski Club. So our oh. junior hills all have, all have the, um, the plastic matting on them. Um, there's not as many places to ski jump in the world or um, in, in, in the United States anyway, as there were when I was a kid. When I was a kid, there was a circuit of places. There were probably, oh, I don't even know, uh, a couple dozen towns throughout the upper Midwest where we would, we, we would sometimes go. Now there's maybe a dozen of those towns. But in the Twin Cities... There are two of them. There's the Minneapolis Ski Club, which is actually in Bloomington, sort of right by Highland Hills. It's a part of the Three Rivers Park system. And then in St. Paul, I'm not even actually sure which St. Paul suburb it's in, but it's right off of 494 after you cross the river, uh, heading if you're heading uh, east on 494. Uh, and, 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 and both of these jumps you can see right off of the interstate. Um, you know, sort of, sort of right up, right, right up on the edge of the of the freeway, hmm. um, and that's the thing about the ski jumps in the Midwest is that they're often. I mean, you see it if you drive to, uh, you know, from from Minneapolis and you're driving uh, east on, on 94, you pass jumps in uh, in uh, Eau Claire, you pass them in Madison. There are jumps in Wisconsin Rapids and. In Iola, Wisconsin, these little towns in Westby, Wisconsin, and usually because we're a pretty flat uh, region, the jump itself, the the scaffold part of the jump, is sticking up above the trees, which gives it this really cool effect of being bigger than it actually <laughs> is. 
Yeah, I think that's really exciting. And I kind of hope it takes off. I was thinking about all the things kids are doing with skateboards and, um, you know, snowboards. And uh, it has that same adrenaline, uh, same, um, you know, uh, you got to build up your skills and, you know, you you have opportunities to test yourself. So I'm maybe, you know, you'll design or add some new people to the sport. Hopefully. We bill ourselves, and I'm still involved with the Minneapolis Ski Club, so when I speak in the second person like this, I mean the, the club and, and, and the community of ski jumpers more generally. We bill ourselves as the the original extreme sport. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, but, it, but it's, it's difficult. Uh, it, it, it's a, in many ways, I think it's been a, a, a slow-dying sport for as long as even as I've been involved in it. No, we struggle all the time to uh, to to recruit kids to come out and give it a try, uh, and I think you know there's so many activities and sports on offer nowadays that it's just you know it gets harder and harder all the time. But we're a devout group, uh, and, and and we're not going to keep or excuse me, we're not going to stop trying. Yeah, and I think that's great that you brought attention to it through the book. And I guess I want to ask you to close maybe with, unless when we can talk about other um, events if you'd like as well. Um, but at that book launch event, you mentioned one of your favorite words, which was verisimilitude, the appearance of being mm-hmm. true or real. And I thought that was a really uh, wonderful thing because you have the ability as a writer, and I think it's one of your greatest talents, is to create spaces and characters that feel real you're reading along you're not you're you're in the moment there's enough detail to allow you to you know create that picture in your mind and they're absolutely exquisite they're perfectly selected i know you work on every word on every page and that you work so that every page in you know enriches and advances the story and i was thinking you did such a good job of you know uh defining for us who who don't ski jump what that's like to do and I think that um, that helps us to appreciate the process. And I was thinking in terms of writing, too, that, um, you know, t- there, there's flying in writing as well. And when it's going well, it feels like flying sometimes. And maybe that's something people don't appreciate. Just like with the skiing, all the practices, all the buildup of skills, all the levels you go through to, to you know, perfect that craft of flying, you know, I, I don't know what records they're setting right now, how many meters they can fly. Um, But I think that there might be a parallel there. So how would you, you know, what would you like to give readers insight into about what it takes to put a novel together? I mean, it's almost impossible to describe because it takes so many different types of effort. And I think the analogy is actually really apt. You know, if you were to come, to the Minneapolis Ski Club for our tournament and watch watch the best jumpers go off the biggest jump, it would appear effortless. Right? Like it would, the, 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 those jump those jumpers have the appearance appearance of, you know, like they were born to do this mm-hmm. or something. Uh, but of course, it's only true that they can do that because they've practiced as often as they have, and they have taken as many jumps as they have, and they have made the incremental steps that are required to go from the smallest jump to the biggest jump. And in a lot of ways, that's what writing a novel is like. And hopefully the finished product comes across as effortless, that the, uh, the, 
the labor of writing a novel like this, which, as I've said a couple of times, took a decade, um, uh, appears to have been easy and joyful. You want that impression to be made. Of course, it often is uh, joyful, uh, but it's almost never easy. And that is true from conception through the final revision. And it really is just a matter of repetition, of sitting down, of working day after day, writing line after line, sentence after sentence, and discovering along the way how this particular novel is going to work. I mentioned earlier, a little while ago, we talked about the sort of circuitous nature of the storytelling. And I, if I had sat down with the intention of writing that, I might never have been able to accomplish it. The fact that it arrived and that I recognized it in the work was something that I've never experienced before. I've always been more intentional than that, but I was lucky enough to have seen it and to have tried to capitalize on it after the fact. And so these sorts of things, I mean, there's a discovery to be made um, every day, often several every day. And this is true on the level of the sentence. It's true on the level of the story. It's true on the level of the big ideas and themes in the novel, the big plot twists and turns in a novel. Um, and so it's, I mean, that makes it sound nearly impossible. And I guess, I guess in a way it kind of, kind of is, or it can, it can be at times. Um, but there's one thing that almost always fixes it fixes that impossible-seeming problem, and that's just hard work and imagination. Those two things, if a writer has those two, two qualities, they're going to uh, find their way through the story uh, in, in more cases than not. At least that's been my experience so far, both as a writer and as a teacher. I think that is an apt description. And if folks want to continue the conversation, Peter will be in Northfield at Content Bookstore, located at 314 Division Street in Northfield. Contentbookstore.com is the website. That's Monday, October 10th from 7 to 8. Or you can visit PeterGuy.com and read about some of his other books and learn a little bit more about this book. And it's just, it's such a delight to be able to share this with our listeners. And I'm hoping we have a big crowd for you as you come on Monday and it's been such such a thrill to be able to have this conversation with you. Uh, it was so fun to talk to you, Paula. Thanks so much. I hope to see lots of folks. You're right. Yes, I will be there and thank you, Peter. I hope you have a great day and a great weekend. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. Folks, this is Art Zaney, Radio for the Imagination, and I thank you so much for joining me today. I hope that you will read a great book and that you will take the time to enjoy your imagination. And, of course, in the meantime, until next time, do more of that. Enjoy your imagination. Connect and experience art at the Northfield Arts Guild. Visit our galleries, arts festival, and take in a performance at our theater featuring a full season of dramas, comedies, and musicals. The Guild's gift shop showcases unique art from over 100 local and regional member artists. Come enjoy music from the Cannon Valley Regional Orchestra or the 411 Concert Series. We invite you to explore your creativity in one of our classes. All are welcome at the Northfield Arts Guild. To learn how you can be a part, visit northfieldartsguild.org or call 507-645-8877. Save 11-